Thanks, guys. Well, good morning, everybody. Great to see you. And uh, for those of you watching online, thank you for watching and for being here. My name is Luke. I'm one of the pastors and part of our preaching team. Are you guys doing all right today? Yeah. Harper, how are you today? Today is Harper Brazelton's 15th birthday. Harper Brazelton, everybody. Uh, everybody focus on her. No, don't do that. But uh, that's what a 15-year-old wants, right? Lots of t- attention from strangers. So uh, anyway, happy birthday, Harper. And I'm glad the rest of you are here as well. And thanks for, thanks for tuning in with us. Um, I want to let you know that today is going to be the last message in, uh, in John for 2020. We'll pack, pick back up with uh, John Uh, in January, but we're going to start next week an Advent series. Advent is that time of year where we're kind of anticipating Christmas, anticipating the the arrival of Jesus. And so uh, here's going to be the Advent series we'll kick off next week. It's called Joy to the World. (laughs) Joy to the World? Right, like we're going to sing this song, and yet in a world like we're in, and in a year like we're in, how could we possibly have joy in this world. That's what we're going to talk about next week. Uh, But today we're continuing in the Gospel of John. Now, there's a story that's not in John, but it's in the Gospel of Luke, and and it's one of the most striking stories of Jesus, I think. Jesus tells this story. He says, "Two, two men went up to the temple to pray. The first one was a Pharisee, and the second one was a tax collector. Now, if you had been listening to Jesus tell this story, when he said Pharisee, you might have wanted to go, yeah, and when he said tax collector, you'd want to go, boo, right? This would be like Jesus saying, hey, two people went up, uh, two people went to church, uh, one a kindergarten teacher, and the other a nightclub owner. <laughs> oh man, how's this going to go, right? That's kind of what you're thinking as you're hearing the story. And Jesus says, two people went up to the temple to pray, a Pharisee and a tax collector. And a Pharisee prayed like this. He stood a long way off uh, and he said, God, I thank you that I'm not like all these other sinners. The tax collector, on the other hand, tax collectors were people who had sold out their own people. They were collecting more taxes than people owed, and they could keep the difference. They were just extorting people. I mean, they were really, it was like organized crime. And the tax collector comes to the temple, and he stands a a long way off, and he can't even look up to heaven, but he just beats his chest, and he says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus says, I tell you that one of those men left and went home right with God. And it's not who you thought when I started the story. The tax collector, not the Pharisee, went home right with God. Because the Pharisee thought he had it all together. He said, look at how impressive I am to other people. It actually says in the story that he kind of prayed to himself. He prayed to himself, oh God, thank you that I'm not like other people. He was comparing himself entirely horizontal. And so he goes home thinking he's fine with God, but actually being totally far from God. The tax collector, he prays vertical. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. He goes home right with God. See, one of the perplexing stories in all of the Gospels, and it's true here in this Gospel of John, is how is it that the the religious people who seem to be so ready and eager and waiting for God's Messiah to come, how is it that when he comes, they miss him? What was going on there? Right? These religious leaders who should have been anticipating the arrival of Messiah, Jesus shows up and they're, they're like, totally opposed to him, 
Right? That, that's what we have been seeing in chapter 5. We're going to look at the last part of chapter 5, but this, all of chapter 5 is just kind of one story. And at the beginning of John chapter 5, Jesus goes, and he goes to this pool called Bethesda where there were all these people that had all sorts of infirmities, and uh, they were kind of superstitiously waiting for an angel to stir up the water so they could rush in, and first one in, first one to cannonball in gets the healing. It was kind of the idea. And Jesus looks at this whole group, and he picks out a man who'd been invalid for 38 years, and he, said, he just speaks, rise, take up your mat, and walk. And the man is instantly healed. Right? Who has the power to create new life like that? Only God. And yet when the leaders, these Jewish leaders, these religious leaders, see the man walking around, rather than going, oh my goodness, the Messiah has come, how did this happen to you? They get mad because the man was doing it on the Sabbath, that one day a week where you weren't supposed to work, and the man's carrying his mat, and that's work. And so they're mad that Jesus healed him on the Sabbath, and then they're mad that Jesus calls God his father as he explains what's going on, and it says in chapter 5, verse 18, this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And so what we looked at last week was that Jesus doesn't back down from this idea that he was claiming to be God. He actually puts all the chips in and says, yeah, you heard that right. I have the authority. I'm going to judge all people in the end. Everyone's going to stand before me. He doubles down on it. But, but it, it keeps raising this question. How is it that the people who should have been most ready to receive God's Messiah actually rejected him? And today we're going to kind of get the answer to that. And we're going to see this play out through the rest of the Gospel of John when we pick back up there in 2021. But I just, I, I want us to see this, that, that there's a reason why these people don't believe. And it's the same reason why you don't believe. And I don't believe. Some of you are here today and you don't consider yourself a follower of Jesus. Maybe you consider yourself a good person. Maybe you consider yourself sort of better than others but you would not consider yourself a Christian. And at the core, what you're gonna to see today is what's keeping you from becoming a Christian. Others of you, you are a follower of Jesus, you do love him, and yet there are times when you drift away from him. And you're gonna to see today what it is in you that makes you drift away from him. Because what kept these people from the Messiah that God had sent is the same thing that keeps you and I from him as well. Let's pray and then I wanna show it to you and see how we can apply it. Father, uh, we invite you now to speak by your spirit, through your word. Help us to have conviction that can only come from the spirit that would lead us to Jesus. We pray it in his name. Amen. So it's interesting. Jesus does this amazing work, and then in a sense, he's kind of on trial. And it's not a formal trial, but he's having to kind of explain himself. And the people are kind of, these leaders are coming against him. What's fascinating is by the end of this conversation, Jesus has actually managed to put them on trial. Say, hey, you're actually the ones that need to answer for why you're not believing the Messiah that God has sent. And so this, this last section of chapter 5 really has a lot of kind of courtroom language. There's a lot of talk about witnesses, and there's a lot of kind of indictments against these leaders. So here's what I want to do. I want to kind of run quickly um, through four witnesses and four indictments that we see in this text, and then I want to try to apply it and help us understand that, that the common thread is why we all tend to resist the Lord. So first, uh, four witnesses that Jesus brings to bear in this story. This is interesting because usually 
in a courtroom, you would only need two witnesses to establish that you were right. Here he does double that. He has four. So the first witness is John the Baptist. Look, look at what it says in John chapter 5, verse 33. Actually, start in verse 32. There's another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony he bears about me is true. You sent to John, that's John the Baptist, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. In other words, John the Baptist was this guy who was telling you that the Messiah was coming, and you were actually excited about it. There was some hype. There was some buzz. You guys went out to the desert. You went out, and you listened to him. Some of you even know people who were baptized. You were excited that the kingdom of God was near. And John is the first one bearing witness that the Messiah was coming and you are not listening. Who else, what else is bearing witness? Well, the works of Jesus are bearing witness. Look at verse 36. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. Well, what has he been doing? He's been healing people. He's, he's been casting out demons. He's been showing signs and wonders that show what life in his kingdom is going to be like. He's saying, those works by themselves should tell you who I am. Not only that, we see third, the, fourth, the third witness is the Father, God the Father himself, verse 30, uh, 37. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you've never heard, his form you've never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you. But it said, the Father who sent me has himself borne witness. Now, we're not sure what Jesus is referring to. Is Jesus saying just, hey, the entirety of everything that I do as I'm connected to the Father bears witness about who I am? Maybe that's what he's saying. Maybe this is also a reference to when Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist. And the voice boomed from heaven. This is my beloved son with whom I'm pleased. Listen to him. And he's saying, the Father spoke. The Father gave witness about who was coming and you didn't listen. Here's the fourth witness is the scriptures or Moses. Verse 39, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life and it is they that bear witness about me. You're searching the scriptures, you're reading the Torah, you're, you've gone through all these classes and all this training and it's formal and you think, oh, if we just have the scriptures, if we just keep all the rules, especially the rules about the Sabbath, if we have that, then we'll be okay. And Jesus says, you miss the point of the scriptures. Uh, one of the movies that I love is A Few Good Men. Any of you know that, that movie? It's one of those movies for me where like, if it's just on TV, I'll watch it every time. Like, I have a DVD of it, I have it on recording, but I don't watch it unless it's on, and then I just watch it every time, right? And one of my favorite lines from A Few Good Men is when uh, Tom Cruise's character and Demi Moore's character, they're having an argument about the way they should approach the defense, and, and Tom Cruise says, I forgot that you were absent the day they taught law at law school, right? I, I just, I love that idea that there's just one day, like, that they teach law at law school, right? Like, that's, a, that's just funny to me. And it's like what Jesus is saying here is, you were absent the day they taught scripture at scripture school <laughs> because the scriptures were all about me. Look at verse 45. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. 
So there's these four witnesses all saying, the Messiah is coming, the Messiah is here, pay attention to him, and they're not, which leads us next to these four indictments of Jesus throughout this story. Here's the first one. The first one is, you haven't heard, seen, or known God. Middle of verse 37, his voice you have never heard, his form you've never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. Think about this. Jesus is talking to people who have devoted their lives to God. He's talking to a group of pastors and saying, you don't know the Bible and you don't know God. Why? Because you don't embrace me. The second indictment, you read the scriptures but refuse to go where they point. Verse 40, I'm sorry, verse 39. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life and it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. You see what I'm doing? You hear the testimony of John the Baptist and of the scriptures and you refuse, you dig your heels in. This is like people who still get lost even though they have a cell phone, right? Like I get how you got lost 30 years ago, right? Cause like you didn't have your map or you'd never been there before, right? Your Rand McNally Atlas like didn't fit in your glove compartment, right? So, but like now, how are you getting lost? You have a phone, it has Google maps. What is wrong with you, right? That, that's what Jesus is saying. Like you have the thing that has pointed to me and you refuse to look at it. Third indictment, you do not have the love of God within you. I know that verse 42 just says this exactly. I know that you do not have the love of God within you. You have a lot of right thoughts. You have a lot of important self-righteous views, but you don't have love for God. What an indictment. Number four, And this gets to the heart, the root of the issue. You are preoccupied with glory from one another. Verse 45. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? And here we get the answer. We get the bottom line. Here's the bottom line. You will not come to Jesus if you're living for the glory that comes from others. That's that's at the root why all these religious leaders who should have embraced the Messiah didn't because they actually weren't living vertically, they were living horizontally. Thank you God that we're not like other people versus having a thing with God vertical. And it's the same for you and it's the same for me. What keeps us, what keeps you and I from having a closeness to God, right? That's the the, the closeness that Tyler talked about last week. I love that. He said, you know, how, how close do we want our relationship with God to be? And a lot of times we think, oh, it should be this close. And it's like, no, it should actually be this close. Right? And, and the reason that we have distance, a lot of times what's in that distance is us being preoccupied with the glory, the reputation how important we seem to other people rather than our relationship with God. It's the same for them. It's the same for us. You know, in 1820, there was a big boom in astronomical discoveries. Lots of different things related to the universe were discovered in 1820, and that's because of what's been known by historians as the era of the great refractors, the era of the great 
refractors. All of a sudden, in the 1820s, uh, there became these huge lenses that could allow you to see things through telescopes into outer space that people had not been able to see before. So here's a picture, actually, of Percival Lowell. He's the guy that uh, Lowell Observatory in Flagstaff is named after. And so there he is. I, I believe he's actually looking at Venus, is what the caption of the photo said. And he's, he's looking through this giant telescope that had a really big, really wide lens that had not been possible before. Here's, a, here's the biggest one. The biggest one that, that was ever made during this era was actually 40 inches in diameter, like a meter. I mean, you see how massive that is. And so all these things happened. They, they had the first ever photos, like up-close photos of the moon during that era. They uh, discovered Neptune. They were able to measure in new ways distances from stars. I mean, it was just this incredible era, this era of the great refractors. But in the late 1800s, that era of the great refractors came to a halt. And these telescopes became worthless. And new things had to be invented. And do you know why? The reason is because as the, as the lenses got so big, they got heavy in the middle. And gravity would push. And the weight of the lenses in the middle would actually make it where they would start to have what they called lens sagging. And all of a sudden now this image that was supposed to be crystal clear was distorted. Well, this to me is such a picture of, of our relationship with God, right? We're made to be these great refractors that look and see the beauty and the definition and the sweetness and the perfection of God. And yet because of sin, we have this lens sagging. Our view is distorted. We don't see things the way that we should. Instead, God seems really small and people seem really big. That's what life is like with sin, is our, our vision is distorted. And that's what Jesus is saying is that to the degree that people are big and God is small, you won't be close to him. So how do we know then if you're living for the glory of others? How do you know if people are too big and God is too small in your world? How do we know? So we've got some, I've got just a handful of diagnostic things. I'm very familiar with these because of my own life. And so here's some ways to know if you're living for the glory of others. First, Praise and criticism both mean too much. If you're living for the glory of others, praise means too much, and criticism means too much. When people say nice things to you and they praise you, it goes to your head. When people critique you and come against you, it goes to your heart. And in both cases, it means too much. I love what Philip Pointer said. He said, if you live for the applause, you'll die from the silence. If you live for the applause, you'll die from the silence. There's a difference, by the way, between encouragement and just praise. Do you live for the praise of others? And do you live to avoid the criticism of others? If that's got two much of a grip on your heart, then people are too big and God's too small. One of my favorite baseball players when I was a kid was Jim Tomey. Uh, Jim Tomey was this just big country boy from, you know, central Illinois, 
played for the Indians forever, hit just gobs and gobs of home runs, like just whatever country strong is, that was Jim Tomey. And he was, you know, strong and good and, and young. And when he came into the league, I remember reading an article about him that he had a license plate. He was number 25. His license plate said DBTH25. DBTH25. DBTH stood for don't believe the hype. And it was this way of him saying, I don't, I'm not going to live for the applause of people because then their silence will kill me. How do you know you're living for the glory of others? Praise and criticism mean too much to you. Here's a second way to know is you, you tell a lot of little white lies. Now, this may not seem intuitive to you at first, but I, I think I can help you make sense of this, right? If you're living for the praise of others, if you're living for the glory of others, then you will tell lots of little lies, little fibs, little twists of the truth that either minimize something bad you did or exaggerate something good you did. And there will be in your life these little exaggerations, these little minimizations, right? I, I had a, a thing the other day where I had this really intense conversation uh, with, a, with a person and um, I had talked to her for two and a half hours about a really important and intense situation. And as I relayed that story to someone else who needed to know about it, I said I talked to her for three hours. Why? You're, well, two and a half, you round up, 2.5, round it up is three. Like, but why did I do that? What's well, because a three-hour conversation sounds more impressive than a two-hour one. And it's just a little white lie. It doesn't really matter. Do you have little white lies that pop up in your life? A little minimize this, a little exaggerate that. What about online? Little white lies? Right online, you look like this. And in person, a little rougher. Number three, you know you're living for the glory of others if you're too easily embarrassed. If you're too easily embarrassed. We have a little saying in our house that we like to talk about, which is the over-exaggerated sense of self. Like we all kind of walk around with this over-exaggerated sense of self. Everybody's looking at me. Everybody's noticing. If I, if I wear that, what will everyone think? Here's what they'll think. Nothing. They don't care. They're not paying attention, it does not matter. But we all are walking around with this over-exaggerated sense of self. And so you don't wanna be embarrassed and you don't wanna put yourself out there and you don't wanna, or you wanna be known as someone who's willing to be embarrassed because that will make you look good to other people. Either way, it's all horizontal. I was just re-listening to a song that was, uh, some, of you, some of you will giggle at this and others of you will roll your eyes, but a song that was significant for me in my early faith was a song by DC Talk called Jesus Freak. Some of you know this song? And uh, Danny likes that song. I don't know how the rest of you feel about that song, but, but uh, that song was really formative to me. I became a follower of Jesus at, at 17 and uh, was listening to that song, and I, I was re-listening to it recently and thinking, God, thank you as kind of corny as the song is, thank you for the words of this song and the, the strength they gave to my young faith. Because here's, here's part of the song. I'm, I'm not going to sing it for you because I'm, I'm too easily embarrassed. Um, but, uh, but the words go, what will people think when they hear that I'm a Jesus freak? What will people do when they find that it's true? 
I don't really care if you label me a Jesus freak. There ain't no disguising the truth. And when you're young, you already think that everyone's looking at you and that everyone cares a lot about you. And you're afraid to look bad and put yourself out there. But what that song did for me is it put steel in my spine. And it said, when you follow Jesus, it is not going to be the coolest path forward. When you follow Jesus, you're going to believe things that everyone else thinks is backwards and narrow-minded and even bigoted. But you hold firm because you follow Jesus and you're a Jesus freak and you don't mind being a Jesus freak. Are you too easily embarrassed? Here's a fourth indication that you live for the glory of others is you're always comparing you're always comparing. We're about to enter the biggest season of comparing of the year, right? Because you got Thanksgiving this week, and then we got the month leading up to Christmas, right? And it's just compare, 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 compare. How does your place setting look compared to the ones on Instagram? How do your presents for your kids look compared to their friends' presents? Like you're, you're watching TV and you're going, I don't think anyone's going to come to my house with a car with a big bow on it. I must be losing at life. Right? There's all this comparing that, that we do. And I want to speak a special word to, to, to you moms, because I think that you moms get especially caught up in this. Um, it's no fault of your own. It actually comes out of your desire to love and honor your kids and do a really great job. And, but you think, man, if, I, if my hot dogs don't look like pinwheels... I'm failing as a mother, right? So here's what I want to tell you. Love your kids. Do your best to point them to Jesus and rest that that will be enough. Your kids do not care what your Thanksgiving table looks like. They do want a Thanksgiving table where they know they're loved. And dads, we compare in different ways. Are you always comparing? Are you always sizing up? Are you always measuring? Are you functionally like that Pharisee who's praying, thank you that I'm not like other people? Here's the last way to know if you're living for the glory of others is that nobody knows the real you. In fact, you can be so self-deceived that you don't actually know the real you either. Here's a way to think about it. Joseph Myers has this great book called The Space to Belong. He says we need these different spaces in our lives for relationship and for connection. You know, we need public spaces, and in public spaces, people just need to know we're there, right? And you feel happy just that someone knew I was there. Then you have social spaces, and in social spaces, people need to know your name, right? This is where you go to the coffee shop, and they don't know anything about you, really, but they know your name, and they know your order, and that's good enough. And then you have personal spaces, and in personal spaces, people know your business, They know what's actually going on in your life, and you need a handful of those relationships, and then you need maybe one or two intimate spaces where people know your secrets. Now, sometimes people try to push everything into that intimate space and get you to overshare, but I think way more of us don't have anywhere where people know the real us. What is weighing you down? What sin just keeps knocking at your door? What brings you to tears? What thrills you with excitement? What are you feeling and hoping in? Do you know? 
See, sometimes we can be so consumed with just how we look to other people that no one actually knows the real us, right? We, We say we don't want to wear masks anymore, but we wear them all the time. So is there any good news for us glory seekers from people? Yeah, there is. There is. And the good news is this, that we look to the one who didn't seek glory from other people, but he just tried to be connected to his father. That's what Jesus is telling us over and over and over in this conversation. In verse 19, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. Verse 30, he says this, I can do nothing on my own. I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. In verse 41, he says, I do not receive glory from people. What Jesus is saying there is not that he's unwilling for people to praise him. That's what we'll actually be doing for all eternity. But what he's saying is he doesn't get fueled off of that. That's not what drives him is the praise of other people. What drives him is connection to the Father. And so when we look to Jesus, our lens that's been sagging and drooping, that's been drifting horizontal, begins to get vertical. And he begins to reframe our perspective. He begins to bring God back into the right vision. And we begin to actually live the way we were meant to live, where now we're actually free to serve people. This is one of the most amazing things about Jesus, isn't it? Is that Jesus is the most free person who ever lived. And how did he get so free? It wasn't by being independent. It was by being dependent. And the more dependent he is, On the Father, the more free he is. The more dependent we are on the opinions of others, the more enslaved we are. So we look to him. We find freedom. We find life. We find a new vision that reminds us that he's enough. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your words to us in the gospel of John. God, thank you for the vision that you've been giving us of Christ. Help us to see him clearly, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.